BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I am bursting with excitement today because I had the privilege, the honor of interviewing Dan Savage, who is just an OG in this industry. I definitely fangirled, was a little nervous. Maybe you can tell in the interview, um, like said a few things that I'm looking back and like, I'm like, cringing. Why did I say that? But hopefully he thought that I was normal. He was such a delight to chat with. He has very interesting just thoughts and lives his life in a very different way than most of the guests I've had on here. And so I'm very excited for you to listen to Dan. And I also wanted to remind you that we have a live show coming up in a few different cities, DC, Nashville, New York City, and Boston in the, in July, at the end of July. So if you haven't gotten a ticket, go to wemetatacme.com slash events. If you like this episode or have liked other episodes, please feel free to write us a review. And I keep forgetting to remind you that we are on YouTube and uploading all of the videos from all of the recordings, especially the in-person ones. I don't know if I'm going to upload the Zoom ones. I feel like it's kind of like a doozy to watch, but maybe. So make sure you're following on YouTube. It's just uh, We Met at Acme on YouTube. Check it out. I am, again, not really going to do a solo because this is a long one that I really do think that you're going to enjoy. And we'll just keep tallying up the thoughts that I'm going to share with you on the full solo that we have for this month. Happy May, by the way. And I am so excited to hear your thoughts on the episode. So enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I'm so excited to be here with the Dan Savage, the host of Savage Lovecast and all around like OG of the podcasting world. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So great to be chatting with you today. I have so many questions for you, but my first question is, what's your favorite romantic gesture? Oh, my God. I mean, that's the sort of thing where you're going to say something that's vague and unspecific and safe, or you're going to say something that's very specific and very revealing. Mm -hmm. You know, if I my favorite romantic, it's to be thought of, it's to be kissed softly on the back of the neck, you know, or it's to be slapped. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like. I'm either going to say something safe or I'm going to say something revealing and I'm torn right now between what I'll say. You know, one of the things I think that's made Savage Love and Savage Lovecast such a success for so long is I don't really write or talk about myself. I mean, I write about myself a little bit, but I don't write about my problems, my sex life. And here you are, the very first question, and you <laughs> stumped me and freaked me out. 
I guess it's to, uh, yeah, to be sort of held the way I like to be held. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Okay. So would you say that physical touch is your love language? No, actually, I'm really uncomfortable with physical touch. Uh, Hmm. There's all sorts of ironies considering, you know, I'm always telling people to feel comfortable in their own skin, feel comfortable with their own sexuality. Some part of that is me working through my own shit. We're all, I think, externalizing all of us who are in the advice racket or the sex relationship racket. A lot of us are externalizing our internal conflicts that we're the person we're giving advice to half the time when we're running our mouths. Yeah. So I was a fat kid in middle school and a little bit into high school, and I've never been comfortable in my own skin. And I have a really hard time being touched. Uh, and I do love cuddling. I do love being touched by my husband and my boyfriend, but there are ways I can't be touched. And one of the things I really, one of the ways they show that they understand my love language, one of the gestures they both deploy that I really appreciate is that they touch me in the ways that they know I like to be touched and are mindful about not touching me in the ways that I don't like to be touched. That's really interesting. But then I assume that navigating that in the beginning was very different than knowing it now. Yeah. Whenever you're with somebody for the first time, you make assumptions about how they might like to be touched based on, you know, your experiences with other people and how they like to be touched you know, hopefully you don't do anything that you would have the common sense to know would be extreme that one person might like that you wouldn't assume anybody else or or only rare somebody else would like that same kind of touch. But yeah, that's something that's learned over time and then demonstrated again and again. You know, one of the things, you know, as a former fat kid, one of the things I don't like is to be kind of looked at like, I don't like to have sex with the light on. And I don't like to be looked at. And one of the things I love about my boyfriend is, you know, when we get undressed together, he doesn't really look at me. You know, he looks at me when we have sex. He looks at me when we're together. But they're like, he gives me my privacy, even when we're both changing in the bathroom together or the bedroom together. He doesn't like stare at me, not the way I stare at him. Interesting. So you wouldn't be into like an eye contact during sex? Situation. Oh, no, totally into eye contact during sex mm-hmm. and just not into being like, like looked up and down, looked up and down. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Even though we're right into it already, can we back up a little bit? And for any of my listeners who don't know you, how old are you, Dan? And where are you from? I am 58 years old. I am from Chicago, Illinois. I'm the third of four children. My dad was a Catholic deacon and a Chicago cop. I grew up in a very multi-generational household. My grandparents, aunts, uncles, my mom, dad, my siblings, um, very religious family. I went to the seminary for high school, thinking about being a priest, and then wound up coming out uh, as gay instead in 1980. So I've been out for 43 years. Um, And that was a real strange moment to come out as gay because it was the last of the kind of 70s gay culture I got to experience in a small way before HIV AIDS slammed into the gay community. And then before the marriage equality movement grew out of the experience of HIV AIDS and the AIDS activist movement. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing that you came out at a time where it was really hard to. And it was rare for gay men of my generation to come out in high school. And I came out in high school. 
And then I wound up writing a sex advice column somehow. I, I just sort of tripped into it. I, I grew up reading Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren and a woman named Xaviera Hollander who wrote a sex advice column for Penthouse magazine. And my brothers got Penthouse for the pictures and I read the articles and I loved Xaviera Hollander's advice column. And then one day I met somebody who was starting a newspaper and said, you should have an advice column. Everybody reads those. And I wasn't, I was saying that as a fan of the genre of the advice column, like I was, have an advice column in your paper, I'll read it. And he turned it around on me and said, that's great advice, write the advice column. And we sort of wrestled with what it would look like for a, a gay guy in a straight newspaper to be giving sex advice to straight people. And at first it was a joke. I was just going to treat straight people with the same contempt straight advice columnists had always treated gay people with in their columns. Right. Uh, but then straight people loved it and the column took off and I started getting real questions, real heartfelt questions from straight people who kind of knew something that I think is generally true about gay people that why do so many straight people turn to their gay friends for sex advice? I didn't invent that. That's just kind of a something that's always been going on. And why do straight people ask the gay people in their lives for sex advice? And it's because they know we know more about sex than they do. Because sex is what makes us not straight people. Sex is what sex is the central mystery of our existence that we have to solve for. And we can make assumptions about in the same way straight people make assumptions about sex. Because for a lot of straight people, sex relationships, there's a lot of default settings that aren't challenged that you just sort of ratchet into. And for gay people, everything's challenged. Everything's opt-in in a way that is not for straight people. So yeah, I just sort of lucked into it. I also feel like men are so much better at being direct with other men than they are with women. Do you agree with that? I, I, I think straight men have a harder time being direct yeah. with women. Yeah, straight men. Gay yeah. men have an easy time being direct with women. Well, gay be men are just good at being direct period i feel you can't um, be a, you can't be an out gay man without being direct you can be a messy closet case without right. being direct but just right. to be out means you're being direct about something that some people wish you weren't honest about or that you had to struggle to get to a point where you were you felt comfortable enough with yourself to be honest about it i personally think that there's nothing sexier than wearing a suit I think that way more women should be wearing suits. I pretty much wore my version of a suit to the rehearsal dinner of my wedding. My friend just wore, she just got married and she just wore a suit to the courthouse to be legally married, which was such a vibe. And I love it. But the problem is, and the reason why most of us don't own suits is because the suits that you buy off the rack, like they box you in and they don't fit you right. With Indochino, they believe that you shouldn't fit your clothes. They should fit you, your body, personality, and style. You should be designing every detail to be totally you. And Indochino has a new women's wear line, which is just for that. I just ordered the most gorgeous Hamilton sharkskin sand pants with the sand blazer. They are like this sand color and it's perfect for spring. You wear with like a white shirt underneath. And I, I think I'm going to wear it to my live show, which hopefully I'll see a lot of you guys at. And I'm just really excited about it because it's tailored to my body. I'm not trying to fit into a size that probably doesn't fit me anymore. And that's what I really, really love about Indochino. If you're like, how do I get started? What do I do? 
Well, let me tell you. All you do is submit your measurements online on their website, and then you can work with one of Indochino's expert style design guides to create an outfit made just for you. Their process allows you to choose the exact customizations you want. So if you're like more top heavy or bottom heavy, whatever it is, it is again, your exact body that they are fitting. So you can find your perfect fit and stand out in style with a custom suit from Indochino. For 10% off, you can use promo code ACME when you visit Indochino.com to book a showroom appointment or place an order. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com promo code ACME. Check it out and can't wait to see your suit. I want to talk about, so because you came out so early and so early on when it wasn't a thing in high school, I assume that like with that came a little bit of trauma. And I think about like the gay, like the people who come out today don't even need to come out really. Right. Like sometimes it's like a default, like sometimes you have to come out as straight. I feel like with Gen Z, I'm 32, so I'm like more millennial, but I just, I see it so often that, you know, I wonder, do you think that people who are like, I don't know, let's say 15 and gay today don't have trauma associated? Or do you think that it's like always going to be traumatic to be something that, because society is still kind of like default straight at the end of the day? I think sex is a little traumatic for all of us, regardless of sexual orientation, because when you think about, I think there's a certain kind of sex negativity hardwired into the human experience because we have such a long adolescence before we grow to sexual maturity and we have a, almost a full understanding of what sex is and what sex does before puberty comes for us, right? And drags us off into sex land. You know, when you first hear about sex, you're, you know, where do babies come from? Where did I come from? You're four, five, six, seven most of us reacted in horror like oh my god you do what adults do what ick yuck i'm never gonna do that and then along comes puberty and you're sort of dragged off almost against your will into this you know carried off by these currents that are bigger and stronger than you so if you're gay you're you know carried off into the rapids in a way that if you're straight you're not carried into those rapids or into quite as rapid rapids but yeah, all of this, I think, have a little bit of conflict about sex and a little bit of struggle to accept our fate sexually. Even people who are asexual, sometimes, you know, they struggle with their experience being so different than all the allosexuals experience. But yeah, now I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> but <laughs> it was more of just like, do Gen people... Z. Yeah, yeah like... is Gen Z feeling trauma from from coming out, you think? Well, I think all of us feel some trauma about sex and a, a little like your sexual self emerges and then you have to reconcile it with the self that you'd already kind of knew and constructed. Whether or not it's easier for people to come out now, I think is, you know, it's the best of times, worst of times. If you're in a supportive environment, you have cool family, you have friends who accept you, you're at a school with a, you know, gender and sexuality alliance, you live not in Uganda, not in Saudi Arabia, not in Russia. Never been a better time or an easier time to come out than right now. If your family is incredibly religious and homophobic or transphobic or biphobic, 
If you're a queer person in Uganda right now or Russia right now, or you're growing up on a Mormon compound in Utah right now, in some ways, because there's such consciousness and paranoia about sexual difference, there's almost never been a worse time to be that 15-year-old queer kid because there's a target on you. One of the things that a lot of older gays and lesbians will say is that when they were kids and they were tomboys or effeminate boys, they weren't perceived necessarily as gay because nobody knew what gay was. Now everybody knows what gay is. And so that kid who's telling on himself, he can't hide or blend in the way that kid could have 50 years ago. So I want to say there's never been a better time. It's so easy for Gen Z now. But I get calls every day and I get letters every day from people who are coming out and it's as hard or harder than it's ever been for that individual. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. It's so much to do with your support system. I feel like with so many things you mentioned your boyfriend and I know you're also married. Yes. So such a hot topic monogamy. (laughs) We did a whole episode on it with a younger guest who's 24 and definitely in the Gen Z world. And she thinks that she doesn't believe in, in monogamy. She's, she's a straight woman. And she thinks that every couple should after 10, 15 years kind of do their own thing, essentially. At what point in your marriage, was it before? Was it after? Did you and your partner have a discussion about like, we'll see if this is always going to be monogamous or let's open this up or whatever discussion it was? God, I kind of want to challenge your your guest about shoulds. I don't think we were always told when we were non-monogamous that we were doing it wrong. And I don't think it's helpful for people who are not monogamous to turn around and tell people who are monogamous or want to be monogamous that they're doing it wrong. Everyone should try to figure out and do what's right for them. And everyone should have the humility to recognize that what's right for me right now may not be right for me always. And relationships change and evolve. My husband and I were monogamous the first four years we were together. Then we sort of opened up just to the occasional three-way. We called them very special guest stars. My husband and I being the kind of risk-averse people we were at that time, you know, there was no prep then. Protease inhibitors uh, were just emerging that made it possible for somebody who got HIV to, to survive. You know, we had an easier time feeling safe and being intimate with guys that we knew rather than guys, you know, one-offs or guys up we picked up off Grinder, which didn't exist then. That's how long ago right. this was. And so we wound up having kind of relationships with the people, friends with benefits, that then eventually we had to recognize that a couple of these guys were boyfriends and they deserved that recognition of their place in our lives and their place, their places in our hearts as not just a friend with benefits, not just somebody we were fucking around with, but somebody who mattered and somebody who had as a boyfriend that we had some obligations toward and that they had a right to make emotional and social demands on us as their partners, even if they weren't our primary partners. So for us, it was really an evolution. When I talk about monogamy, I'm not one of those people who's not monogamous, who tells monogamous people they're doing it wrong and they should have to, every, you know, being poly, 
or open is the more highly evolved state. What I tell people who want to be monogamous is to be realistic about what monogamy is. We're told that monogamy comes naturally. We're told that if we are in love with someone, we won't want to sleep with anybody else. And those are lies. We're not a naturally monogamous species. Very few species are. And even if you love someone and you've made a monogamous commitment, you're still going to want to fuck other people. And your partner is still going to want to fuck other people. And rather than being in denial about that and policing each other for evidence of what you should just assume to be true, of course, they're attracted to other people sometimes. You should allow for that and make space for that, even if you're not making space for fucking other people. You know, the amount of times I hear from people who are like all upset because, you know, their husband or spouse, wife looked at the waiter, looked at the bartender, flirted with, and they're so angry. And why are they angry? Well, they were attracted to somebody else. Of course they are, as are you, if you're going to be honest, if you could be honest. And so what does that mean for a monogamous relationship? Well, you can remove a whole bunch of conflict from a monogamous relationship by not making it a problem when you stumble over evidence that your partner who doesn't sleep with anybody else and deserves some credit for the struggle that that is, is attracted to somebody else. They're going to be attracted to other people. And how do you de-escalate that conflict? Well, you make it not a problem. You make it something that you accept. Of course they are. They don't fuck other people. But of course they're going to want to. And the thing, the most explosive thing I say to people about monogamy is that it's the only thing that we require perfection. Perfection is the only standard for success. That if you're with somebody for 60 years, you married them when you were 20 and 60 years of marriage and they cheated on you once, they never loved you. They were no good at monogamy. The whole relationship was a lie. That's the wrong way to regard it. With somebody 60 years, they cheated on you a couple of times. They were really good at monogamy. Not bad at it. They were really good at it. You can be a gold medal winning snowboarder. I always use Sean White as my example because he was winning all the gold medals when my kid was young and a snowboarder. He falls down every once in a while and he gets up and he's still Sean White, gold medal winning in the Olympics, snowboarder, best in the world, right? He still fell down. Why don't we have the same sort of attitude toward monogamy. Somebody fell down, they can get back up. They can re-earn your trust. But we tell people that adultery and fidelity is an unforgivable betrayal, and then they experience it as that, rather than telling people that this is in a long, multi-decade relationship, almost an inevitability, and something you may have to forgive to get past to save your monogamous relationship. I think the problem is not being bad at monogamy sometimes. I feel like the problem is the pressure to like, the problem is exactly what you said, not having an open dialogue, a real conversation around like this being okay. And so then when it happens, you're like, oh, hell no, I'm packing my shit. I'm leaving. But in a way, and I know like Esther Perel talks about this, it's like you never created an environment that like you know, they felt like they could talk to you about things that they wanted to do. So then you're even more betrayed because you're like, I made the rules clear and they broke the rules. But if you were someone who opened like before it even happened, we're like, if you ever have these feelings, like talk to me about it because I get it and I want to understand. And I'm curious what you think of this. Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, get it and understand is one thing. Get it, understand, and am threatened by and angry about is another. Mm. Early in my first, I was with a guy for five years. It was monogamous the entire time, that relationship. I cheated and he cheated. And But early in that relationship, but he cheated after I cheated, so he wins. Early in that relationship, I remember having, you know, there was some guy that he had a crush on who was not me. And my attitude was close your eyes while I blow you and pretend it's him. And it, that put his desire for somebody else into harness to, to serve our relationship. That became fuel for our fire. My, my attitude, my take toward it. That's what I think people should do. Like you can make a problem out of outside attraction and it can, you know, get it to a problematic point, or you can make it something that you bring to each other to fuel your fire, to, to excite each other. And if you create some space where it's allowable, and then you have to use your, you know, your fucking common sense. If you have a desperate crush on a coworker and you're having an emotional affair, that's not something you can bring to your spouse and have them be excited about. But if you bring to your spouse a little bit of erotic energy or affirmation or something that you felt for another person and you can lay that in front of them and then fuck the shit out of each other, basically, that's going to serve your relationship. And, and that's what you have to be deft enough to do. Like find the ways that we're everything that's going on outside your relationship, erotically, sexually, even if there's no sex, no actual contact, how do you bring that into your relationship? To, to to fuel your attraction and desire for each other. And that can be really constructive. If you're open to it, if you're in denial about it, you're not supposed to be attracted. You're not even supposed to notice anybody else. Nobody else is supposed to notice you. Okay, this is so meta right now. Like, this is hilarious. I am about to record an ad for Sakara while I'm eating Sakara. Sakara is a nutritional program that's like having a nutritionist and a chef all in one. Their meals are expertly designed to support your goals from weight management to clearer skin and boosted energy. And they're also freaking delicious. This morning I had a protein banana bread that was so good. Right now I'm having the high vibe honeydew salad with kombucha vinaigrette. It is divine. And it also has an entire avocado in it. Do you know how expensive that usually is? But with Saqqara, they make it work for you. And I have a code for you. So I'm saving you all the money, which is amazing. Sakara brings expertly designed organic nutrition programs and wellness essentials right to your door. Their science-backed, ready-to-eat meals deliver results you can see and feel from weight management to ease bloat, boosted energy, and clearer skin. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash Acme or enter code Acme at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash Acme to get 20% off of your first order. Sakara.com slash Acme. And their program is flexible too. So you can say, oh, I only want Monday through Wednesday, or I only want breakfast. I only want dinners. Whatever you want, Sakara has something for you, especially as you get busier, as it gets nicer out. So go to Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash Acme and get 20% off of your first order. I remember it was April Fool's and I, all of my friends are like heteros. No, that's not true. Sorry. 
I have like tons of gay couples, but in this crew, it's like all like heterosexual couples and none of them like the word non-monogamous, like E&M, like it would just never be a construct to them. Right. And it was April Fool's and I was at brunch with three girls who are all married to men. And I was like, Hey guys, like, I just want you to know, um, Steven, my husband and I are, we're opening up our marriage and it was April fool's. So I obviously just wanted to like, you know, see what they would think, but also like, it's not the craziest thing. Like I'm not saying that our, who knows, you know, but if anyone's going to open their marriage in that crew, it would have been my husband and I. So it wasn't like so far off, you know, that they wouldn't believe me. And the reactions were all different. And then I was like April fools. And two of my girlfriends were like, Oh my God, I was going to say that is the worst idea I have ever heard. Like if my husband like even thought about something like that, like it would be over. And I was just like, Oh my God, that that that's a huge problem that you reacted to that that way. Define everything. Well, we'll define infidelity as unforgivable, then turn around and define absolutely everything as infidelity. Like if my husband so much as thought of another person like this, and then complain about the divorce rate, then complain about the instability and the brittleness of your relationships. I lose my patience with primarily straight people Porn is cheating. Flirting is cheating. You know, having a friend of the opposite sex at work, you know, a work wife or work husband, that's cheating. Talking to an ex is cheating. Having being on a friendly terms with an ex, sending an email once a year on their birthday just to say, wishing you well, that's everything's fucking cheating and cheating's unforgivable. Like be single then. Like you're going to set every relationship you're in up for failure. Just be single. And how many people who have that attitude, if you so much thought of sleeping with somebody else, are in relationships that are technically sexless, where you're not allowed to think about having sex with anybody else, but we're not really having sex with each other anymore because they're taking each other for granted, because desire is an obligation and not a pleasure or a joy or a release anymore. That always breaks my brain. Our relationship is sexless. I don't want to fuck him, but I don't want him fucking anybody else or her fucking anybody else. But I don't want to fuck her or him. Yeah. What is what is that? It makes makes no sense. It makes my head explode. But you actually gave me a great segue because I was listening to your episode on Ezra Klein's podcast and you were mentioning statistics around gay versus straight marriages like, you know, straight marriages ending in so much more divorce than gay marriages. Surprisingly though, straight marriages are less likely to end in divorce than lesbian marriages. And everyone thinks women are the stabilizing influence in a heterosexual relationship. And when you look at relationships that are between two women, they're actually less stable than a relationship between a man and a woman. Yeah. And the study that I cited on Ezra Klein is out of Poland, which has had same-sex marriage for the longest. And they were able to compare over decades now, gay male relationships, lesbian relationships, straight relationships. And what they found, surprisingly, was that the most stable were gay, less stable straight, 
least stable, lesbian. They also found least likely to be monogamous, gay, more likely straight, most likely lesbian. So correlates, there's the correlation there, no causation proved yet, but non-monogamy seems to correlate more strongly with relationship resilience and stability than monogamy. Because lesbians are the most monogamous, most likely to divorce. Gays, least monogamous, least likely to divorce. I think there's just something so sexy about being like, you have the option to choose, you know, whatever, but you still choose me first and foremost at the end of the day. Like there's just something so sexy about that. But I want to like actually go back a little bit to you and your husband having the initial conversation where you decided that your marriage was evolving. It's very hard for me to believe because I do think it's almost impossible that a decision like that or a decision to break up, right, comes from just, sorry, comes from both people at the same time, at the same thought, you know? So it's in my mind, right? Like someone must have had to initiate that. I initiated that conversation at the very start of our relationship. I had been in a monogamous relationship for five years and I was terrible at it. And the entire time I thought I'm failing at monogamy. And then one day I came to the realization that monogamy was failing me. Not that I was bad at it, but that it was not right for me. And so when I met Terry, I was like, I don't want to have a monogamous relationship. And Terry said, I only want a monogamous relationship. And that became the price of admission that I had to pay to be with Terry. Was I willing to be monogamous to be with him? And I made it clear to him that for him, I would be monogamous, but I would rather have an open relationship, but I would be monogamous. And I was. And then four years into the relationship, it was actually Terry who initiated opening it up because he knew how I felt the whole time. And when a circumstance arose where he wanted to have a sexual experience with somebody else, he brought that to me and said, I would like to do this. I, How would you feel if I went and did this thing? And I said, I would love that. Let's you go do that thing. Not because that then opened the floodgates and I could do anything I wanted because he came to me for my permission to, you know, have this experience. I said, yes. And then we had a conversation about, you know, when he would be comfortable with me doing something similar, us doing that thing together, which is where we landed. You know, he went off and had some crazy sexual experiences with a friend with a dungeon. And then we went together to have those experiences together after he had them on his own for a little bit. And we that's how we we moved into it. But it wasn't like we were on the same page from the very start. We were actually on very different pages, the opposite page from the start. He wanted monogamy. I didn't. I agreed to monogamy with not, you know, we were also two years later, we were adopting for parents and we had some sessions with the couples counselor when we were adopting because I wouldn't adopt if cheating was a death penalty for the relationship mm. offense. I said to Terry at the time, like, odds are you're going to cheat on me or I'm going to cheat on you. If we bring a child into our relationship and cheating means our relationship is over, we're bringing a child into a home that's already, you know, the death warrant's been written for that relationship. And that doesn't seem fair to the kid. So we got to a place where we had this agreement that 
we would default to working it out rather than default to cheating is the end of the relationship default to if there was cheating, we would get through it. We would figure it out. We would try to save the relationship and regard the relationship itself more as more important than perfectly executed sexual exclusivity. I'm always told that I'm the one who places too much importance on sex by people who say, I will end a marriage if you have sex with somebody else. How is that not placing too much importance on sex? You yeah. take everything a marriage and a relationship is about, a shared history together, love and affection, intimacy, family, children, property, you know, the, the assets you've built together, financial, but also social. You put all of that on one side of the scales and you put got a blowjob on a business trip on the other side of the scales. And that outweighs all of everything the marriage is about. The the blowjob on a business trip or the hand job or the, you know, the, the affair is means more and has more weight than the rest of it. I think those are the people who put too much importance on sex, who regard yeah. it always as the end, as an unforgivable betrayal. Yeah, but I feel like that depends on like, if, you know, if your husband's cheating on you with your sister or like, if <laughs> that's they the example are like, I always you use. know, like, it's like you just like, you can't just, yes, correct. Like you shouldn't maybe throw away marriage and three kids you know, for a hand job on a business trip, let's say maybe, even though like that still would piss me off because I'm like, just tell me you want to get a hand job that night. And I'll be like, go have your hand job, honey. Like live your life. It's just the lying that I care about. But it's like, if I find out that you are, you have been sleeping, it's like your intentions behind it. Like if you are trying to get out of this marriage by like sleeping with our kids teacher for the past four months, then you are a fucking loser. Like, but if you just I mean, like want to get depends. off, one, yeah, it no, depends. it depends. It depends, like, and that's why, yeah, with that's why the examples I use are the hand job on the business trip from, yeah. you know, a massage therapist. That I think you should be able to get past, perhaps, and forgive. Fuck your sister on your wedding night. That's a betrayal yeah. of an order that I think indicates that that person isn't someone you're emotionally or sexually safe with for all sorts of reasons. Right. right? That's a brutal negation of sort of who you should be and how you should be treated by this person and cared for by this person. So yeah, you have to judge it based on what happened. And, but right. then we don't do that. We don't do that. Hand job in a business trip is as emotionally scarring. People are cranked up to believe as fucked my sister on my wedding night. And I think those are two very different incidents. Yes and no. I feel like the hand job on the business trip, and it's funny that you bring up the business trip like hand job thing because in my other episode where we talked about monogamy, her example was like the blowjob on a business trip. It's like oh, that always is like the go to. But I think for me in my relationship, and everyone's you know situations are different, but my husband knows that like it turns me on to think about him with another woman. Like it's kind of like a kink I have, whatever. So if he were to get a blowjob on a business trip, but be so shady about it. And then like I found out in a weird way, then I would be like, well, you're just an asshole because you know, it would have turned me on if you were like, I'm at this business trip and this girl wants to blow me. What are your thoughts? That's then a I'd very like, different kettle of fish. How would it. you feel though, if he called you immediately after and said, guess what? I just got blown. I'd be like, you're sick. Like what's really? wrong with you? Yeah. Really? I would have been like, why don't you just, yes. I'd rather him before be like, there's this girl who clearly wants to blow me. Like, what are your thoughts? I'd be like, get your, get your rocks off. Like, you know, but 
I think it's the it's the disrespect of like doing it without considering me first and considering the fact that you know that I like it. But what I don't like is not being in the know, you know? So you like it turns you on to think about him messing around with another woman, but you always want the courtesy of the advance notice. Because yeah. like, maybe you're not in the right headspace. Maybe like you guys had a fight right before this trip. Yeah. And so you yeah, just, that it's, wouldn't be it's gonna land different or land wrong. I, I can wrap my head around that. Like you, maybe one of the reasons I'm more cut out for non-monogamy is it turns me on to think about my husband with another guy. And so like seeing him. The first time we had a three-way seeing him get fucked by somebody else in front of me was like hot. Not right. It didn't like make all my insecurities boil over. I was like, that's hot. But I and also, so for me, yeah. it's not a problem if I hear about it after the fact, so long as totally. I hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we always like, called it that what's in it for me. Like if you're gonna yeah. fuck around with somebody else, what's in it for me? And at least a really good story and a hand job out of it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like you also, I, I did some research. I think you are a Libra. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. I'm a Libra also. And I feel like we are just like, we lean open-minded once what's your husband's birthday. I think he's a Pisces March. Oh my God. What's my husband's birthday? March 11. <laughs> yeah. So he leans like more emotional maybe than you. Yeah. And also less thoughtful. Okay. He doesn't think and, things yeah. through. Uh huh. And what about your boyfriend's birthday? I'm just curious. I'm also a Pisces. Oh wow, you're very but, attracted to Pisces. But he's. I don't kind of believe in. All yeah, this that's fine. That's stuff. fair. Most most men don't. My boyfriend and my husband are like polar opposite human okay. beings. So you know, my boyfriend is basically Spock, and my husband is all intuition and impulse. And mm -hmm. my boyfriend is always ask for permission and my husband has always asked for forgiveness not permission yeah yeah fair this episode is also supported by seed there are over 3.8 million posts on instagram with the hashtag gut health like over 653 million videos on tiktok about it and if you search it on Google, you will yield over 29 million news results all about it. Gut health, probiotics, the microbiome, everyone is talking about it. Like I can't stop hearing about it. Everywhere I go, people are talking about it. And people are learning more than ever about transforming medicine, hygiene, diet, and the choices we make day to day with our health. I was always like interested a little bit in gut health, but I never really knew what to trust and who to listen to. And there's so many people out there that are certainly not doctors telling you what to do. But I was seeing seed over and over and over again. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll give this a try. Seed is a microbiome sciences pioneering applications of bacteria to impact human and environmental health. They develop scientifically validated, clinically studied, next generation probiotics for people and the planet. Their first product for humans is the DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. And it's the only probiotic that I trust and actually take because my microbiome has never felt healthier. 
If you've taken probiotics before and you haven't felt a difference, it's likely because the capsule isn't designed to survive your stomach acid or your digestive enzymes, but seed is different. Cut through the gut health noise. Visit seed.com slash Acme and use code Acme to redeem 25% off of your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash Acme and use code Acme. Do you, and it's okay, this is too personal, but do you only sleep with your boyfriend right now? No, my husband has a boyfriend as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I heard heard you mention that. We're at a very complicated stage of poly where I live with my husband and boyfriend in Seattle and I live with my boyfriend half the year in an undisclosed location <laughs> oh. somewhere else. And so I do have sex with my husband when I'm at home, but my husband doesn't have sex with my boyfriend. But my husband and I do sometimes have three ways and my boyfriend and I sometimes have mm-hmm. three ways. We're gay mm-hmm. men. We're gay yeah. men. Yeah. Do, have you ever felt jealous when your partner is with their boyfriend? Absolutely. But it's rarely about sex. The first time I really experienced jealousy with Terry in our relationship was very early on when we were boyfriends. And he had a you know really close friend and they were kind of boyfriends and everything but name. They didn't have sex. They were just like romantic friends. And they lived together for a while. And then Terry moved in with me and we got a condo together and I came home one day in December and he and his friend, you know, his very close, intimate kind of boyfriendy vibe friend had gone out and bought a Christmas tree for our house. And I got super jealous because going out to get a tree together is something you do with your romantic partner. It's something that you do with your boyfriend and I'm your boyfriend and you went and did this thing with your friend who's not your boyfriend. And that I was jealous and possessive of. If I'd come home, you know, and we had talked about it and he was getting railed by that guy, I would have been fine with it, but not by a Christmas tree. So yeah, I experienced jealousy. It's just a little different, I think, than the jealousy a lot of people experience. And, And jealousy is often about primacy. And some people think if you feel jealous, that's disqualifying somehow from being in an open or polyamorous relationship. Jealousy is kind of a control. like. I'm feeling jealous because maybe I'm being neglected or taken for granted and I need to speak up. But there's also good jealousy. People always talk about bad jealousy. There's good jealousy. You know, you see your partner being desired by someone else and it makes you desire your partner. You see them through someone else's eyes and you're more attracted to your partner at the end of that experience than, than you were before. You know, one of the things that, People, in you know, there are advantages to monogamy around paternity, definitely your kid, less risk of sexually transmitted infections. For a lot of people, there's an emotional security in monogamy, even if it drives a kind of sexual innervation, innervation. with non-monogamy, which I think it would be beneficial if monogamous people could acknowledge this, that variety and churn that keeps things fresh and exciting is there. And a lot of that is often driven by eroticized and contained feelings of jealousy, where you're toying with those emotions in the same way that, you know, during sex, you might play with pain or force, you know, held down my hair pulled, you know, while you're fucking me, pull my hair that hurts a little, but it's contained and, and it hurts good. 
There are sometimes when you're jealous and it's contained and jealousy hurts, but it hurts good when it's contained in that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like what you said with the Christmas tree example is kind of a perfect example. Like you were like, it would be fine if I came home and he was railing someone. It wouldn't be fine if he was going Christmas tree shopping. I feel like that's literally an exact analogy of how men feel about their. Okay, I'm trying to like word this properly, but basically like how men justify sleeping with someone else versus how they feel about their wife sleeping with someone else. So meaning like, like I had this conversation with my husband recently and like, okay, we were talking about threesomes. Right. And I was like, you know, if we did a threesome, like, would you want it to be like a girl? Would you be okay with being a guy? Whatever. And he's like, I mean, obviously it would be a girl, you know? And I'm like, but what, like, what is the, issue with it being guy. And he was like, well, I don't want you to sleep with anyone. And like, I'm putting him in a bad light. Like he's actually so wonderful. And like, (laughs) I, you know, but his point was that like, if I sleep with someone, it's like the Christmas tree feeling. Like it feels like I'm going Christmas tree shopping. It feels like more of like an emotional connection. Whereas, whereas if he sleeps with someone, it's exactly that and nothing else. Well, that when you start making generalizations about 4 billion people and another 4 billion people, men and women, there'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. And the exceptions are likelier to listen to your show and my show, are just likelier on average to listen to us. So a lot of people will jump up and object to this. It is broadly true of many men that they can have sex without feelings getting involved, that it's just sex. And it's broadly true that for many women, it's the opposite, that there needs to be some feeling, some connection. And you can, if you think about the mechanics of sex, it makes a rough sort of sense. If you're a man and you're penetrating someone, you're inside someone else's body, they're not inside yours. And that's very different. And for gay men, you know, gay men can penetrate or be penetrated. And of course, straight men pegging can be penetrated as well. But a lot of women's experience of sex requires a certain sense of, you know, because men are dangerous, testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Women require a certain, like, feeling of safety, intimacy, connection, even if that is something that a particular woman can intuit quickly. You know, women can have one-night stands and do and feel safe and good about it. But women can also have one-night stands that where they wind up feeling not great about it because, you know, you get strong. And so it makes sense that your husband might find it a little more threatening to think about you with a man than you would to think about him with a woman, because there's some essential truth about the way men and women experience sex differently and function differently sexually from one another, where it is going to mean something different for you to bring another person into your body than it would mean necessarily for him to throw his dick into somebody else's body. That's so interesting. I didn't think about it as like external versus internal. Like for men, it's literally external. And for us, it's internal. And maybe that's literally exactly that. Yeah. And for me as a gay man, it's it can be either. And I know from personal experience that getting fucked is a higher degree of sort of emotional, physical difficulty. Bringing someone into my body like that, I feel more vulnerable than I do when I fuck somebody. Mm, yeah. 
Okay, I have three more questions and then we're going to do a really fun uh, rapid fire. Do you think that monogamy is related to scarcity mindset? There's a lot of people argue that monogamy is related to capitalism. When you think about monogamy through most of human history, and most cultures weren't monogamous, they were polygamous, where a, a man would have many wives. It was really women as property and breeding chattel. Uh, and it was a property exchange between men. And monogamy was something that was enforced enforced on women, you know, at penalty of social death or actual physical death. And monogamy wasn't imposed on men. It wasn't until really in the West in the last hundred plus years, as a relationships between men and women became more egalitarian, that we shifted on monogamy. But rather than shifting to extending to women the same license and you know, freedom around the edges that men had always enjoyed. We imposed on men the same limitations women had always chafed under. And I think the outcome has been a kind of disastrous for straight relationships. Yeah. That's, I mean, a lot, it's funny because I, that was what the history of marriage is, that like property exchange. So, yeah. yeah. Stephanie Kuntz wrote a great book called Marriage a History. And, you know, marriage was a property exchange. And there was a point at which, you know, people began, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, we shifted from hunter gatherers to agriculture. And it was about, you know, private property, being able to like leave things to your family, keep it within the bloodline. And then it became very important who your actual family was. And you couldn't know as a man, if those kids were yours, if you, the woman that you had them with was ever out of your sight or out of your control. And so I think monogamy it can be loving, it can be giving, it can be it means something different now than it meant 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, but it has roots in something very dark. And I think we have to, as the kids in college now say, interrogate it and really think about it. And I think gay people model a kind of monogamy for straight people that's very functional, if only in that for gay people, it's not a default setting, it's an opt-in. All gay couples who are monogamous chose to be monogamous. Most straight couples who are monogamous never had a conversation about it. Yeah, I feel like maybe couples should be having the conversation of how monogamous are we going to be before defining the relationship. And that this is a conversation that we can revisit and that either of us should be able yeah. to raise without a total freak out meltdown and recriminations. And, and recognizing that relation, you know, if what you want is a lifelong committed relationship who you are and what you want at the start, like my husband wanted monogamy at the start, my husband has a boyfriend now, may change in time. The way you feel and what you require from your primary partner, you know, in the first year versus what you need or require from them in the 20th year could be very, very different. And you should be open to not, evolve, you know, you have to evolve toward non-monogamy as if that's better, I don't necessarily think it is. And there are people in monogamous relationships who are open at the start or open for a time and have closed back up. It's whatever works for you at right. whatever time and wherever you're at in that relationship that you should be doing. And that's a negotiation and a conversation. And that really is what gay people do. And I think model for straight people is that we have conversations about sex and relationships because we have to. You know, even just the mechanics of sex, you probably heard me say this on my show, a man and a woman go to bed yeah. together for the first time. As soon as they get to consent to sex, they stop talking 
because it's, you know, vaginal penetration, PIV, that's what's going to happen now. Two men get to yes, we're going to have sex for the first time. And that's the start of the conversation because you can't default to PIV. And similarly, in gay relationships, we don't default to monogamy. We talk about it. That's not to say that there aren't monogamous gay couples out there. There are, but it was a choice they made, not a choice made for them. Right. All right. This is my second to last. How, okay, this is actually something that a lot of women wrote in. How to know when ethical non-monogamy is right for you and your relationship? Uh, You can know it's right for you without being able to know if it's right for your relationship because that involves the other person's choices and what's right for them. If it's right for you, if you know you can't be monogamous or can't be happy in a monogamous relationship and you are in a monogamous relationship, and there are a lot of people who wake up in monogamous relationships and realize that that wasn't what they ultimately wanted or needed. We're told monogamy is what everybody does want, should want, what all good people do, what all good people want. We all want to be good people. And so we make monogamous commitments that then we realize were wrong for us. That was my situation in my first long-term five-year supposed to be monogamous, I cheated a lot relationship, right? So you can know it's right for you. You can also at the same time know it's wrong for your relationship because it's not what your partner would want. And then you have to face a much more difficult knowing, a much more difficult decision, which is whether to end the relationship over monogamy. I think sexual compatibility is really important in long-term relationships. I think sexual compatibility is crucial and sexually exclusive long-term relationships. And yet we are not encouraged to prioritize sexual compatibility because that's putting too much importance on sex, placing too much importance on sex rather than all the other things that supposedly matter more. But if the sex doesn't work and you're sexually dissatisfied, that is an acid that is just going to dissolve the relationship in time. You're going to stew in resentment. Eventually you're going to slam your hand down on the eject button somehow. You're going to engineer the end of that relationship. And you see it often where the relationship isn't working because of sex. And both not, they don't feel, people in that relationship don't feel like sex is a legitimate reason, sexual dissatisfaction, a legitimate reason to end the relationship. And so subconsciously, they'll engineer other reasons. They'll create other conflicts. Right. So they can get out of the relationship for sex, but not because of sex. Yeah. That's so funny because I've always thought that and maybe it's just because I'm more like of a sexual person, but I've always ended relationships because of sex. Like, and you are, and you and are not, and wise else. too. And it sounds like what you have <laughs> yeah. with your husband is a mostly monogamous relationship with a strong sex. No, it's, it's monogamous. It's well, the monogamous. way you said, like, it turns you on sometimes to think about him with other women. No, of course. No, of course. No, no, no. That's it, a hypothetical. Is, right now. Yeah, right now that's hypothetical. We are still basically newlyweds. So I don't think that he would even like let us have a threesome. Like, cause I'm, it's more of a thing that I want until like, you know. Well, there's going, you know, at the beginning of the relationship, I think maybe I already said this. I'm so bananas at this point because from sleep deprivation. At the beginning of the relationship, you're the adventure they're on and they're the adventure you're on. And so the sex is effortlessly exciting at the start and mm-hmm. then you know 10 years in you're not the adventure for them anymore they're not the adventure for you anymore if you want that adventurous sexual feeling again you have to intentionally go on a sexual adventure together as a couple you have to engineer mm-hmm. adventure 
10 years in that was just built in, hardwired in at the start. And that's a mistake that a lot of people, you know, they mourn. Like, why is the sex so boring now? It was so exciting at first. It was exciting at first because it was risky and dangerous because you didn't know this person very well. Now you know this person. Now it's this person's job to fuck you. Now it's, right. you right. can have it whenever they you better. want it. Sure. And so 10 years in, what you know, a three-way might not be right for you guys now, but it might be absolutely the ticket 10 years in. That might be the, totally. you know, you're still the adventure each other is on now. But in 10 years, you guys, like a lot of couples, will maybe make that pivot where you go on an adventure together and you feel as excited and connected. Yeah. You know, there were t- yeah. times, like a lot of my husband and I's early adventures around sex involved BDSM and like a very kinky friend with a dungeon. And there were times when like the craziest, kinkiest shit was happening to me and my husband. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, I love you so much. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just like this, you know, that big you know, natural oxy feeling of love overwhelmed you because of what being with you was making possible for me and vice versa. That being with me meant that this could happen for you. And so you love, he loved me more, not despite. Right, right. I love that. And also I've heard that when sex is good in your relationship, it's 10% of the relationship. And when sex is bad, it's 90%. Have you I haven't, but I'm going to use that. From now on, where did you hear Use that? It, please, please. I don't remember, but you can say that you heard it from me. Okay, last quickie. I have a set of rules that I, and I feel like you're going to hate these. And that's why so many of my listeners were like, ask Dan what he thinks about your rules. I have rules for women dating men and men dating women. I also have gay rules, actually, which maybe I should be reading you those and getting your thoughts on those. But they were given to me by gay friends, not like me coming, bringing them out of my ass. But basically the rules are... You coming down from gay mountain like, like gay Moses with the gay rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rules are like to protect women when dating. And and the rules for men are to, you know, like are pay for the date, like initiate the date and, you know, things like that. The rules for women are like basically let him lead. Let him like court you because straight men, they don't want to like sleep with them on the first night type of thing. Like they want to like get you. And so that's basically what, what the rules are. So I'll read you like a few and if, and you could just be like, absolutely hate that. Or that actually makes sense. Okay. This is for women, for straight women dating straight men. Don't text them. Thank you. After the first date, because you've already thanked them in person. And then like you let them text you. Okay. Sure. Whatever. Okay. (laughs) That's not no. That's not no. I mean, it's, it's, it seems, it seems to, a little silly, but, yeah. you know, you should text somebody if you're feeling it and yeah. you should demonstrate good judgment by not. Over- right. But not out of like desperation to get them to text you. Yeah. Okay. Don't put all your eggs in one basket until things are like official. Yeah, absolutely. Keep your options okay. open. Agree dating used to mean mm-hmm, not, mm-hmm. you know, so many people now regard dating as you go out on one date and you're shocked to find they've gone out on a date with another person in the next week as if it's already monogamous and exclusive after one date. That, right, that's, that's crazy pants. That's crazy. Everyone you meet is dating someone else when you meet them. No sex until like the fifth or sixth date. Well, that's not a gay relationship rule. No, no, no. This is for, this is straight. Yeah. Rules. Everybody I know in a gay relationship had sex 
sometimes the moment they met, sometimes sex was first right. before right. there was any dating. Sex was first, then they started. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, potentially a good strategy. You know, we're in the midst of an enormous okay. sex recession where people your age and younger are having much less sex, much less likely to be in relationships, much less likely to have had sex for yeah. a year. And I worry that throwing down arbitrary thunderbolty rules like this may make that problem worse. But it's the reason behind it. It's because it's hot. The buildup is hot. The tension. It is hot. But, you know, there's a lot of men out there, particularly young men who are hyper-conscious and concerned about coming across as harass holes. And so they mm -hmm. don't feel like they can initiate or pursue without being perceived as sexually threatening. And if we want to live in a world where there's fewer sexually threatening men, we may have to live in a world where there's more women who initiate, who make that first move, at least somehow signal, you know, do the red baboon yeah. butt in the air somehow to signal interest and availability. Because absent some unambiguous signal from a woman that she would like you to approach, that she would like to be asked out, even if you're going to do the asking, there's a lot of men these days who are worried about the social cost or worried about That's traumatizing true. somebody, you know, the cost of that other person right. potentially. And so aren't doing that initiating. And then you're left with the only people doing the initiating and doing the pursuing are the ones who don't care whether they come off as threatening. And so we're selecting then for assholes in a marketplace where men have to make all the first moves. That's true. Definitely make it clear that you want to fuck, but that you're, you know, not ready yet, whatever. Okay. These are rapid fire. So just give me like one word answers. Okay. All right. Does your partner like to gossip? Yes or no? Absolutely. <laughs> when entering a physical relationship, do you ask beforehand if they like going down on their partners? I assume they like going down on their partners. Oral comes standard. Mm -hmm. Any model that arrives without oral should be immediately returned to the lot for an exchange. Is it an unspoken rule in your relationship that your significant other texts you when they get home after going out? Yes or no? Yes. You're on a second date and you see the guy litter. Red flag or deal breaker? Neither. The deal breaker comes when you point out that they littered, how they react to that. Because mm, then you're going to see how you process conflict. I, I don't want to, I never like to give like a one word answer. Because then you're yeah, going to yeah, give you an yeah, opportunity yeah, to hard. see like, hey, what are, you, what are you throwing that bottle on the ground for? If they right. blow up at you for pointing that out, then obviously run. If they're like, mm -hmm. uh, a momentary lapse of judgment, ah, I'm so embarrassed, maybe you yeah. should go down on them. Fair. You have lots of family trauma and your significant other doesn't. When you try to talk through emotional triggers on occasion, they have no idea how to comfort you and get quiet, which leaves you feeling worse. You've started to internalize it because they're not helpful and they don't create a helpful space to communicate. Is that a red flag or something like something you could work through or a deal breaker? It's something that maybe you can go to somebody else for. Mm -hmm. One person can't be all things to another person sexually, emotionally, Sometimes somebody can be absolutely the right partner for you, but not be able to meet a particular emotional need. And it can be wise to sometimes get those needs met elsewhere. You should demand from your partner consideration. They shouldn't like stomp on a trigger that you've pointed out as a trigger thoughtlessly because that, that kind of inconsideration is deadly for a relationship and you're not going to be safe in that relationship. But if your partner just doesn't understand family trauma and so can't talk with you about that in an informed way, in an insightful way, can't relate, 
talk with that to somebody else, relate about that with somebody else and let your partner off that hook. Or tell your partner exactly what you need from them in that moment. Cause like we're not mind readers. Oh, absolutely not mind readers. That's, a, that's, that's such great advice all times in relationships. I can't, yeah. and, and people will, yeah, people will tell themselves a story based on what little information they're getting from their partner and usually a bad version of right. the story. I just right. had this out with my boyfriend where I made a whole bunch of assumptions based on what he said and did that was just not absolutely his intent at all and a complete misreading of how he was feeling. And it wasn't until I was like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Have you ever come back from feeling like one partner is walking on eggshells? Yes. Okay. That's hopeful. And a one word answer for a change. And a one word, one word answer. I love it. Is it okay to keep memorabilia from a last relationship? Absolutely. It's a red flag. If somebody doesn't want you to have that memorabilia from a past relationship, there's a difference between on display. If there's like pictures of the ex all over the house in prominent places, right, that's weird. That's one thing, but like mementos in a shoebox or a drawer, maybe a picture or two out particularly if it's significant life events that someone's experienced with another person, you don't get to erase their history or deny them that history or deny them those mementos. That's insecure controlling behavior. That's a red flag when someone's like, even that wedding album from your previous marriage, you know, if your spouse died or even a marriage that ended in divorce, if it was amicable, you have to get rid of that. No, you get rid of the person telling you to get rid of that. I agree with that. I got rid of my memorabilia drawer when I moved in with my now husband. But that's because I wanted to like I was like over these like loser guys that I had dated and I was like, I don't want any memory. But if I had wanted to keep them, yeah, I would have fucking I would have kept them. Do you take a sleep aid every night often, rarely or never? Like a sleeping pill mm-hmm. or like a melatonin or I do. Yes. So every night, every night. Yeah, I feel like it's like an age thing, too. Like as you get older, you really need that. If you and your significant other live together, do you only hook up in the bed or wherever, whenever, wherever the moment strikes? Well, as a polyamorous person, I have to object to the monogamous uh, bigotry of significant other singular, my significant <laughs> other's plural. No, nothing's off limits. There's no sacred space. Uh, but that's different for different people. Like some people want to have a space or even like a particular suite of sex acts that's reserved for the primary partner and that's a legitimate boundary uh but yeah my husband can fuck anybody he wants anywhere he wants and vice versa love it thank you for letting me keep you so long dan can you leave us with a quote or piece of advice something that's just like a thing that will help our listeners that has helped you the price of admission i talked about earlier is something I talk about on my show a lot. And I came to that with Terry, that being monogamous at the beginning of the relationship was a price of admission I was willing to pay to be with him. There are always, you're never going to get everything you want out of a relationship. If being with somebody means you don't get to do X or have X and X is something you can't live without, that's not a price of admission that you can or should pay. But if being with somebody is worth it, going without whatever it might be, a particular need not being met, and it's worth it or, you know, something you have to do in the relationship. I, I'm the neat one. I clean up after Terry. He's a slob. I, that's another price of admission I'm willing to pay to be with him. But what's crucial when it comes to paying the price of admission is you pay it and you don't complain about it. Like, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be monogamous. I'm not going to whine at you every day about it. 
I'm going to accept that this is a price I'm willing to pay to ride this ride and I'm going to enjoy the ride. Some people are like, I'm going to pay the price of mission, but I'm going to make sure you know every day I'm paying this price and right. I'm going to punish you for it every day. That's not paying the price of admission. That's being a dick and torturing somebody yep. in a relationship for the rest of your life. I clean up after Terry. I used to complain about it. He makes himself a sandwich, leaves everything out. I used to yell at him, put this away, put that away. What are you doing? And then one day I just put it all away. And it was like, that was easy, required less energy effort from me. And it made him feel loved. And so cleaning up after him in those small ways, I do it all the time. And there are lots of prices of admissions that he's paid to be with me too. And we love each other and value each other for those reasons. I know what he's given up to be with me. He knows what he's given up, or I've given up to be with him. And it's one of the ways, it's, it's part of our love language is seeing the sacrifices we've made for each other. And appreciating each other for those sacrifices, for those prices of admission that we have both paid. I love it. Thank you so much. Where can everybody find you, follow you, listen to you, read all of your words? I'm on Twitter still at fake Dan Savage. We'll see how much longer I'm there. <laughs> but my website is all things me, savage.love, where you'll find Savage Love, which is my sex advice column that I've been writing for 33 years now. And you'll find the Savage Bloodcast, which is my long-running sex and relationship advice podcast, where I have really fascinating guests. May Martin is on this week, the comedian. And uh, I take calls from my listeners, give sex and relationship advice. And the show opens every week with a monologue about politics, current events, news stories I think are interesting, sex things I think are interesting. Uh, and it's really a good time. I really enjoy the show. And it's popular, so I hope... Uh, I guess people enjoy it too. And uh, I would Definitely. invite your listeners to check it out. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.